Welcome to the Real Self University podcast. I'm Eva Shea, your host and director of practice development at Real Self. My guest today on the Real Self University podcast is Dr. Stanley Okoro, who's based in Atlanta, Georgia. Welcome, Dr. Okoro. Thank you, Eva, for inviting me to the Real Self podcast. We're glad to have you. Tell us a little bit about your practice and what your main areas of focus are in the practice. We have a mostly aesthetic practice. About 95 to 97% of my practice is aesthetic surgery. We do face, breast, and body. Body being the majority of our cases, about maybe 60 to 70% of our cases are body, which is liposuction, tummy tuck, breast and butt lift. But we do a fair amount of breast work as well and then facial surgery. What's in the 5% that's not cosmetic? Ha! <laughs> I knew you were going to slow it down. <laughs> Smart lady, yeah. We do a fair amount of breast reduction, and those are usually covered by insurance, yes. That's why. And then I used to have a reconstructive practice from when I was in the Navy, and some of my patients still follow me for breast reconstruction. So I, I, I never abandoned my patients, so I still do them. Got it. And so coming out of the military, you know, this is a tricky transition for a lot of people. Right. What year did you decide to leave your Navy practice and start on your own? So I left Navy 2010. Eva, this is like deja vu over again. Why? In 2010, when I was leaving the Navy, we were in the middle of a recession. Oh my gosh, you're right. You picked a great time to start your practice. Yeah, I did. And I was very scared at that point. I didn't know if I was going to survive it. So I was in Washington, D.C., Bethesda, Maryland. We came back to Atlanta and um, opened a practice. And because uh, when you're in the military, you don't really feel the economy. Okay, you, you have a salary, you have no idea what is going on, and you wanted to open up a practice, and now you have to deal with the realities of the economy. So that's sort of what's happening right now as well. And how long had you been in the Navy? I was in the Navy for 12 years. Okay, that's, that's a pretty substantial amount of time. And it, so before we go any further into what you did then, just take us back a little further and explain how you got from Nigeria to the Navy. Oh, okay. All right. Um, I was born and raised in Nigeria. I went to high school in Nigeria. And then my father, who's a businessman and a lawyer, wanted me to come to the United States for education. So I was, was very lucky. My father can afford to do that for me. So we went to London first. We have some friends and family in London. He wanted me to... Again, I'm very lucky and I thank God for that. Give me the choice to pick between London versus the U.S. So we flew to London, spent about a week there. It was in November. It was so cold. There was no sun. It was just It was raining. It was just, it wasn't wasn't my style. So we had a round trip to get from Nigeria, Lagos, London, New York, back to London, just in case I didn't like it. So we went to London, and of course I was a little kid. I was 16 years old when I finished high school. Came to New York. It was a very bright day, but it was cold. 
but it was bright. I saw the sun. And of course, Nigerian culture is very similar to the American culture. The driving is on the same side of the road. So naturally, I told oh. my father I love the American better than, than uh, England. So, so the, this is great 16-year-old decision-making. The, the sun <laughs> was shining and they were driving on the correct side of the road. Therefore, I want to go to New York. Okay. That's, that's yeah. exactly what happened. So I loved it. <laughs> and... Uh, Anyway, so I've watched American movies my whole life, and it was like a dream come true. And it was like, I didn't want to learn how to drive on the other side of the road. It just, it wasn't, it just wasn't me. So I went to college in Washington, D.C., at University of uh, District of Columbia. That's where I had my bachelor's degree in biology. And then from there, I graduated with honors. And I was admitted to uh, Meharry Medical College in Nashville, Tennessee. I did my four years there. It was an awesome experience at Meharry. Meharry is a private medical school in Nashville, historically a black university. It was very good for me. I learned a lot there. And I did very well academically. And from there, I went to Emory University where I did my general surgery. That's why I came to Atlanta. Five years in Atlanta, general surgery. While I was in general surgery, I joined the Navy. They approached me, and I've always liked honor and structure and all that stuff. So I loved it. Of course, they gave me money. That, that wasn't bad either. As a resident, you didn't make a lot of money when you are a resident. And so after general surgery training in Emory, I moved to Great Lakes, Illinois, joined it. That was my first duty station in uh, Illinois. That's where boot camp is. Yes. So at Great Lakes, Great Lakes is where the Navy trains all of their recruits mm-hmm. for enlisted. So I know this because so many of my friends' children have gone there for boot camp. Yeah. So I was there for four years in general surgery. But going back to Emory, well, while I was at Emory, I bumped into plastic surgery, reconstruction. But prior to that, I had my contract with the Navy is to come in as a general surgeon. So I applied while I was still at Emory, if they could switch me to plastic surgery, the Navy wrote back said, no, your contract is aged for a general surgeon and they need general surgeons more than they need plastic surgeons. So we are not going to switch you, you will stay at general surgeon. So I finished Emory, joined the Navy at Great Lakes, Illinois, you have to apply for them to let you train in plastic surgery. For the last four years, they denied me. The last year, they said, okay, go train. I said, I thought it was a trick. But however, you're going to owe more time. No problem. I was having a great time anyway. Why not? Mm-hmm. So I, from Illinois, I applied and I was accepted at University of Texas Health Science Center in San Antonio. That's where I did my plastic surgery training for three years. Excellent program, excellent training, both private, university, VA training. I mean, I, I came out ready to go. It's an awesome training program. And I had to go back into the Navy because I, you know, I had a you deal. You still owed them time. Yeah. I still owed them time. So I went back into the Navy and then Bethesda Naval Medical Center. That time it was called the National Naval Medical Center. It was all Navy. My last year, the Water Reed was closed. Water Reed was Army Medical Center. They moved 
it to our beautiful campus in Bethesda. And I was leaving and the army and the Navy joined the hospital. So that's when I came to Atlanta. That is a long road. Yeah. But sometimes in life, those things, I thought my colleagues were ahead of me and I enjoyed every bit of it. I learned so much wisdom. You can't buy it. Mm -hmm. It takes time. So yeah, it was a long road for me, but it was good for me. So I practiced general surgery for four years and then trained plastic surgery and came back. So it's okay. It's all good for me right now. Is there anything about treating military patients that informed the way you take care of your current patient base? And how are those two groups of patients different from each other? Very, very different. They all want the same thing. But if there was ever an ideal world, people always use the word ideal world. I would say the military will be the ideal world. When I was a military your patient respected you, you respected your patients, and there was not a lot of doubt or questioning. And I mean, you are the doctor, and people respected, and most doctors respected their patients and did everything that you did was in the best interest of your patient, just like we do in the civilian world. But the patients respected you more than they do in civilian world. That's the difference. That's really interesting. So were you doing mostly general surgery for the entire time you were in the Navy? When I was a general surgeon, I did general surgery. Once I finished plastic surgery and went back into the Navy, I did plastic surgery. But during the war, I did both. I did whatever it took. I I would do like a mastectomy and breast reconstruction. I will do war stuff, where abdominal reconstruction wound with general surgeons. And pl- so I did, I did whatever it took. It was a, the best thing that ever happened to them while I was there. It's a, probably showing my ignorance of how this stuff works, but this is, I like to like figure out all the things, you know. So once you were able to do cosmetic surgery in the Navy, were you doing cosmetic cases or were they mostly reconstructive? Like, can someone come to you and say, I want a breast dog in the Navy? Absolutely. So we, of course, the military is focused mostly on reconstruction, but plastic surgery is a spectrum. Reconstruction and aesthetic surgery merge. So we are allowed to do cosmetic surgery as long as it didn't interfere with the reconstructive part of the practice. And so who does the patient pay the bill to? To the Navy or to you? Yes. No, no, no. To the Navy. To the Navy. So it was awesome because uh, in the Navy, when patients want cosmetic surgery, it's cheaper than in the civilian world. So I had a, a waiting list. I'm sure you did. Months. So we will call people when we don't have reconstructive work and they will come and they pay a minimum amount to cover the cost of stuff. And we would do, and then, you know, when there was no war, we did a lot of cosmetic surgery. When there's war, there is no cosmetic surgery. But Mm -hmm. they pay for it. It's not free. It's not free, but it's cheaper. So you just go on down to the PX and sign up for your surgery? At the the hospital. (laughs) Not PX. (laughs) (laughs) Not at the hospital. We we have offices just like here. You know, we have (laughs) consultation, the whole thing. Got it. Okay. 
I appreciate you walking me through the landscape. That's really helpful. And I, I think people like picturing what that's like because that world is so foreign to most of us. Yes. Unless you have a family member who's in the military and not in intelligence, then you, you just have no idea what it's like. Okay. So today you're in a completely different world. Like you've swapped one for the other and you've worked very hard to grow what you've got now. And so you have a large plastic practice. You have a med spa. Does anyone from your family work in the practice? Yes, but they, they don't want anybody to know that they're from my practice. They don't want anyone to know. Yeah, okay. but they are. So my wife runs the office. She is the administrator. So she's at the back office and she doesn't like to go to the front. She likes to be behind me, behind the scene, but she runs the office. My daughter, Adobe, so my wife is Aggie and Adobe is my daughter. They both run the office. So Adobe is, you know, my daughter. So she's front and back. We have about 25 employees, but two of them are my family. So right. and they keep me at peace so I could focus on clinical practice. Yeah. What kinds of challenges do you run into with family working with you? Or it's just perfect all the time, right? No. Uh, no, it's not. You know, many of my colleagues have, we're in the same situation. You know, I mean, yeah. just like my marriage, when you work with your family, there are certain rules you have to follow. There's boundaries. So when I'm at work, I'm the boss. When we get home, things change a little bit. You know, <laughs> but the problem is you can't be the boss at work. And then there are consequences when you get home. <laughs> There's a balance here. <laughs> There's a balance. So you have to know how to navigate those boundaries very well. And then, you know, I think my wife understands that. And we, we've been working together now for 10 years. This is our 10th year in practice. So we, we work well together. There are, sometimes we disagree on things and, but in the office, when we disagree, I have to make the breaking call on that. Who makes the marketing decisions? We both do, but I, I think I would probably say I'm probably 80% of the marketing. She has probably 20%, but she pays the bill. So if she doesn't like the idea, she doesn't pay the bill, then and that, that dies. <laughs> she doesn't. So really, she's... Okay, got it. Uh, anyway. yeah. We've worked together on quite a few things that I've been on over the last 10 years. And I'm curious your impressions of what works, you know, not old ones, but like currently what's working well for you on the marketing front? And don't worry about virus time. We're talking about in general, not, not during the virus. In terms of marketing? Driving patients to the practice. I think in the last 10 years, what I've learned is Everything is connected. But first of all, you have to be a good person to your patients. Your patients are people. Treat them well. And then number two is you have to be a good surgeon to get good results. If you're good and have an okay result, the patients are still... People respond to how you make them feel. So good person, good surgeon... And then that starts the word of mouth. There is nothing more powerful than that. Nothing. You can't buy that with money. Nope, you can't. Now, these days, that word of mouth is different. It's called reviews and referrals, right? 
and social media is the new word of mouth. But the principle is still the same. So I think over the years, you build all that value and it reflects on your online presence. We have a good online presence, then like today, I don't spend money on Google pay-per-click. I don't spend zero on that, zero. Now, I'm saying this not because I'm doing this Real Self podcast, but we've been with Real Self for 10 years. Mm-hmm. You can ask Tom about that. I know when Tom started, I was one of the very first people that joined in Atlanta. I remember. <laughs> yeah. So Real Self has been a good word of mouth for us. And that's the only place we advertise now, actually. Most of my, our advertising dollar is spent on real stuff. Mm-hmm. So that works for our practice. We've done everything just like everybody else. I've done TV. I used to be on TV once or twice a week. I've done radio, pay-per-click, paper, and all of that stuff. Majority of my patients now that I see today, either I referred by somebody I did surgery on, or they saw my before and after photo, or they saw a review, or they saw me on real self. Before we came on right now, I saw a patient that somebody referred to me. She also saw me on real self, but from real self, she went to a website. You know, they, they, yeah. they don't just it's go all to, connected. It's all connected. It's not just one thing, you know. Yeah. You know what we call this? It's called multi-touch attribution. And every time I say it, the doctors go, huh? Multi-what? <laughs> multi-touch attribution. <laughs> it's terrible. What? Multi-touch attribution. Okay, that's a new I'm glad you told me that because I, I want to learn something new every day. So that's, that's a new one. Yeah. Before there was multi-touch, there was last-touch attribution. And this is the number we still all have, which is conversions in Google Analytics. So you can go in there and say, I got 10 leads from yourself and two from Instagram. And that's last-touch attribution because... That's the last thing they did before they filled out the form. But you're beyond your colleagues because you understand that it's all connected and they're looking at everything. Yeah, you have to look at everything. Everything is connected because if you ask them how they found it, if they're honest with you, they'll tell you online. Yeah, I, I found you on the Google. Yeah, but you have to dig deep. If you really listen to them, what they're telling you is, most patients will research you everywhere. Like right now, we are trying to do something in our basement. And I, I was telling my wife last night that I feel like a cosmetic patient right now. So we're getting three quotes. Three people are coming to my house and they're wearing masks, right? And I'm like, oh my God, these people, are they going to mess up my house? What the, the same thing. Yeah. So we are looking at them and then we have three quotes. We're going to go with the person that we like the most. And that's not necessarily the cheapest one. It might not be the best decision either. It might not be the best decision, but that's who I like. That human beings are still emotional. We like to connect. So you do business with people that have something in common. So you asked me a question previously about the patients. And the, the military patients connect with me here now. The ex-military or people who are in the family have military, once they learn about my military experience, instant connection. Yes. And that creates trust. And we can't underestimate that. 
you know, you got me thinking about another place where patients are connecting secretly that I think a lot of us forget about. And these sort of recommendations and referrals went underground years ago and we have no way to track them and we forget that they're doing it. But on Facebook and in other places where they have secret groups, and I know now because I'm in some, they're constantly asking, have you seen this surgeon? What was your experience? And dozens or hundreds of people will say, yes, great. I had a great experience or no, don't go there. It's terrible. And none of us are seeing any of this stuff happen. That is true. That is true. That is still the same word amount, but now it's in a group word amount. Yeah. It's amplified. Yes. And it's hidden from the rest of us. So I just wanted to call that out because I think that's true. it's, It's a part of the equation that we all miss. Okay. I noticed that you wrote a book about BBLs and... I'm curious how you decided to do that. Oh, there it is. There's the book. Brazilian Butt Lift, a leading plastic surgeon reveals everything you need to know about fat transfer. How long did it take you to write this book? You want the truth? Yes, of course. You can't handle the truth. (laughs) Um, I did this book uh, over a weekend. Really? But Yeah, I did, but I, I had professional help, full disclosure. You had a, a ghostwriter or a partner or something like no, that? No, it's easy to write a book. Now I know. So I went to Tampa at a book writing seminar, and I had somebody interview me. Uh-huh. And so let me back up. They tell you how to write a book, but it doesn't really help until it happens. So get your topic, write that on, in this card, the chapters. And you give it to the person and then you just talk, just like we're talking right now. Okay. And then they will transcribe the book for you. And then you edit it and then give it to a professional editor. They will give you the final book. And that's it. I've probably written 20 books by now. We can turn this into a book. Let's do it. I don't think anyone will buy it. Maybe but... it well, maybe not, but hey, you never know. So somebody... <laughs> There's, there's always somebody willing to buy what you're selling. Yeah, I suppose that's true. So maybe yeah. at least one person. Yeah, there's always, your family will buy it just to make you feel good. Yeah, they will. I want to switch to the other side of your work right now. And I, I noticed while I was looking at your website and stalking you that you are doing a fair amount of mission work too. And I wonder if you can tell us a little more about that. Thank you for asking that. When I was growing up, my dad built a hospital in the village. There was no hospital in in our village. So it was a philanthropic hospital. And interestingly, I had my appendectomy done in that hospital before I came to the United States. But the point I'm trying to make is my father and my mother had put that bug in me about giving back. So when I was in general surgery residency, that's when I started doing mission work back home. So I continue to do that today. So twice a year or so, I go back and get back, do surgery free of charge, uh, even pay for the hospitalization because they're poor. They don't have any access to good care. Nigeria is a very rich country, don't get me wrong, but you know, there's the rich and then there's poor. 
we're talking about the poor people in the village. The rich ones travel everywhere, and that's why the healthcare system is not good because they're not investing in the local healthcare system. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so I give back with my friends. And are you doing that in the hospital that your dad built? Yes. Yeah. So you're bringing your friends there with you who are also surgeons? Yeah. So I don't always go to my dad's own hospital. I don't know if we even call it a hospital, it's a clinic. Okay. Mm-hmm. But I bring my friends or any, anybody that wants to give back. Both We do both medical and surgical. So we educate them. And those that need surgery, we treat them as well. So, and then we give them drugs if they need high blood pressure, diabetes, that kind of stuff. And then we refer them to local doctors, just bridging the access. And we've done that for the last probably about 20 years now. That's the, one of the best times of the year I enjoy because there is nothing like giving back to somebody that with no expectation of return of anything. And they pray for you. Maybe that helps you come back safely and stuff like that. So it's all good. Yeah. Is it something that others could get involved in with you or is it just something that you do? We have a foundation, um, Georgia Plastic Foundation, and the foundation sponsors the mission. We take people all the time. Friends can contact me if they want to go. You know, we go to Nigeria only. You know, they say charity begins at home. So I took it to that level. I go home every December, at least, um, spend about a week or two. So anybody can get involved. And we've taken, and I want to thank anybody that's traveled with me and thank them for coming. And sometimes people just donate for us to buy those equipments and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's open invitation. I had no idea. I had never known until this week that you were doing any of that. Real self donated to us one year. Oh, mm-hmm. that's great. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry to call you out. <laughs> I, prob- I probably wasn't on that project that year. No, yeah, no. Uh, I wrote to Tom. He, um, he donated a very nice donation. That was good. Oh, that's great. I'm happy to hear that. <laughs> Remind him. <laughs> okay, I will. On this podcast, I try to wrap it up with the same question every time. And you probably didn't look at it because you don't know what I'm going to ask. I can tell by your face. So the, the question is, everyone has a unique superpower. And I would like to know what yours is. Wow. I didn't realize we have superpowers. Everyone has one. I would say, even in terms of gift that God's given us, right? Sure. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I don't think I have superpower, but I would say I have a God-given gift that I use every day in my life. I have two, but they're both related. I think God has given me the gift of trust. People trust me very easily. When I meet people, people like me. I'm likable. How about that? Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, I think it goes beyond likable. Yeah, I think, like, I met you and... You like me, I think. <laughs> I do. Yeah, exactly. So I have that gift of establishing trust in relationships quickly than most people. I think uh, that's a gift. That may be my superpower and that may be my success when I meet patients. Because if a patient meets and trusts you, they'll let you do surgery on them. Mm-hmm. And most people that 
I meet in my practice, either close with surgery or, or if they don't close, usually because they can't afford the, the price or something like that. So we have a very high close rate. That may be it. I don't know. It's the key driver of choosing a surgeon is that the surgeon made them feel comfortable. Okay. So if that's what's happening to you, that's certainly why. Yeah. Probably. So I think that that's my superpower then. Yeah. That's a yeah. good one. It's, <laughs> it's really useful in your line of work. <laughs> yeah. They've told me that too, you know, like I, I trust you. And I, I was, you know, go like this. I'm like, oh, yeah, it's working. It's a gift. It is. Well, thank you for sharing your stories with us today. We really appreciate you joining us. <laughs> thank you, Eva, for inviting me. It was quite an honor to talk to you and to see you again. Thanks for listening to the Real Self University podcast. The mission of Real Self is to create a world where every investment in modern beauty is worth it. And Real Self University is here to help aesthetic professionals do just that. The mission of our podcast is to uncover stories and data from our industry's most interesting and successful personalities. If you'd like to be a guest on the Real Self University podcast, have feedback or questions, email university at realself.com. Support us and help us keep this effort going by subscribing to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like more information about becoming Real Self Verified, go to realself.com slash network and enter referral code podcast to receive 50% off your first full month of Real Self Spotlights. I'm your host and producer, Eva Shea. Our post-production is by Daniel Cruiser. All of our learning and practice development resources are available on demand at university.realself.com.